What pictures come to mind when I say the words court jester? What if I told you that the fools in the Tudor court didn't look or sound anything like the zany clowns you have in mind? From the Folger Shakespeare Library, this is Shakespeare Unlimited. I'm Michael Whitmore, the Folger Director. Historians don't know much about Will Summer, or Summers as he was later called. We know he was Henry VIII's court fool, and we know what he looked like because he was included in several portraits of the royal family. But the details of his biography, and crucially his comedy, were never recorded. Nevertheless, by Shakespeare's time, Will Summer had become famous. Whenever a poet or playwright needed to reference a long-lost comedy great, they'd name-check Will Summer, kind of like mentioning Charlie Chaplin or Groucho Marx today. But because none of Summer's jokes survived, later writers just made them up, inventing a comedian to suit their own tastes. That all makes Peter K. Anderson's job much harder. Anderson is a historian at Örebro University in Sweden. Anderson has written a biography of the elusive Will Summer digging through the layers of fiction that accumulated over the centuries. What he reveals is a court fool very different from anything we might recognize from King Lear or Twelfth Night. Here's Peter K. Anderson in conversation with Barbara Bogave. Why Will Summer, Henry VIII's fool? And is it because Henry is just so fascinating, or, or is it because Summer was the most famous fool ever? Well, Will Summer was definitely one of the most famous English fools of the Renaissance or the early modern period, if not internationally. But there were numerous fools in this period who, who one might try to write a biography about. Will Summer is an example of a Renaissance fool that is perhaps a bit more well-documented than the average fool uh, of this period. And of course, he lived in a very exciting time. So, of course, it was it was quite logical to to write a book about him. I want to talk, I, I want to get to Will Summer in a moment, but but just so we have some kind of grounding in, in fools, because I think we all are picturing a court jester with the cap and the bells and stuff. Mm. Um, who, who had the first fool at court? Oh, <laughs> well, that's, that's, a, that's a very good question. The first fool at court, I mean, we're probably going back to, to ancient history, the pharaohs, maybe even earlier than that. There were definitely fools um, or the equivalent of fools in, in Greek and Roman antiquity and so on. But yes, this is something that has existed for almost all of, all of history, I would say. So what was the fool's role at court? I mean, was was the fool a reminder of the outside world, a place where people are more sincere and not so artificial as the royal court? Exactly. I think they they, they had a sort of uh, almost ritualistic or, or symbolic function of of uh, counterposing the the sort of majesty and and uh, pomposity of, of of the monarchs and the and the nobility. Very often in in uh, portraits of of royalty in Spain, for instance, you can see them depicted. To, together with the court dwarf and the sort of difference in size and so on was probably meant to evoke some f- form of amusing juxtaposition. So it was very complicated and probably a lot of a lot of different reasons for their, their presence. Yeah, it's complicated. There, there are different <laughs> functions, right? And uh, yeah. there's just one more thing I want to nail down before we talk about Will Summer, which is this 
distinction that you make in discussing fools between a natural and an artificial fool. Yes, that's quite essential when you talk about fools in the early modern period because people talk about natural fools and artificial fools. And basically what that was, it was that natural fools were fools who were had some form of intellectual disability and they were employed based on that, based on the fact that they were different from, from the rest at, at court. Uh, and then there were artificial fools who, as you could, might gather, were more skilled comedians, sometimes even, even writers. But I think most fools, when we go back to the Renaissance and the 15th, 16th century, were natural fools. And there was a sort of suspicion towards artificial fools because you, you really, most monarchs really wanted a, a natural fool. Why? I think there was there was something symbolic in the natural fool. They had no affected behavior. They didn't perform. They said what they said and uh, they didn't sort of act in any with any mannerisms or anything like that in the way that other courtiers did. So they 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 were seen as some something different, something more authentic than uh, than uh, most other peoples uh, at court. Right. So that what we were talking about before, like a walking symbol of authenticity. Um, yes. Yeah. And and like a human pet. I mean, it sounds like. Yes. The the actually the phrase human pet has been. Uh, suggested by by some earlier scholars, and I don't think that's. I mean, it's not only that, but but sometimes when you look at the way fools were treated uh, in this period, yeah, they they were treated with a sort of condescension, but also care and sympathy in the way that you might treat um, an old dog or something. Yeah. Okay. Now we now let's talk about Will Summer the man. Now that we know okay. a little bit more about about court fools. What do we know about him? His What do we know about his origins and his temperament? Uh, the first references to him in court records are from around 1535, in the middle of the reign of, of Henry VIII. And then he's uh, referenced in, uh, you know, payments and court accounts from uh, Henry VIII through the reign of Edward and uh, Mary Tudor, and he is even present at the coronation of uh, Elizabeth I. And then there is a record of his, his uh, funeral in 1560. So he was present at court during quite a long time. Where he came from, uh, it's almost impossible to say. There are uh, several posthumous stories about how he came to court, the most believable of which says that he was originally employed by a local rural lord uh, who was uh, convicted of treason by Henry VIII. And so Henry took over this fool. And then according to legend, Will Summer pleaded with, with Henry on his deathbed to pardon this original lord, which he did. But so so this story sort of suggests that Will Summer was loyal to his original master all, all his life. But, but we don't know if this is true, really. We know that this man existed and so on, but whether he was the original employer of, of Will Summer, we cannot really say. Uh, so you can't really tell where he comes from, but you do write about uh, the fact that many disabled people were kept in nunneries. Or lived yes. in nunneries, and there was something like a scout for fools who would go to nunneries, like a <laughs> baseball scout. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, well, uh, especially in the Middle Ages, um, 
people with an intellectual disability could could be um, housed at at uh, convents or nunneries and so on. And and there are a few records of of people with with similar names to Will Summer from from convents, but there is no, nothing to substantiate that he that he came from a nunnery or something like that. But there is an interesting letter from from uh, a courtier at this time who has um, been traveling around in, in the provinces and he spotted a fool at an abbey and, and uh, he thinks this, this fool is, is suitable to be, to be uh, a new court fool. Whether this was Will Summer or not, we cannot say. Probably not, but, but it's still a very interesting document because it just suggests, just as you say, that there was some sort of talent scouting going on. <laughs> there was a biography about Will Summer, a pamphlet. Yeah, what did what did it say? Was it factual at all? And just how common was it to have biographies of of jesters? <laughs> <laughs> well, this uh, particular biography was was published, I think, seventy years after his death, and is not very reliable. Uh, basically, what it is, it's it's a jest book, which was a very common genre of pamphlets in the early modern period. Uh, oh, really? People of, kept of jest jokes. books in their privy? <laughs> uh, <laughs> yes, maybe. Uh, so collections of jokes. And, and sometimes these jest books could be uh, in the form of uh, jest biographies, uh, the uh, different sort of anecdotes and funny jokes that were attributed to one uh, certain individual. But quite often these jest biographies were very sort of, I mean, it's all anecdotes and sometimes these anecdotes can be found in another book attributed to someone else and so on. So so they're very unreliable as a source for information on, on the life of that person. Okay, so someone was just trying to make a buck. Exactly, uh-huh. exactly. Okay, we don't know where Will Summer then came from, really. Um, no. <laughs> do we even know if he told jokes? <laughs> No, we don't. <laughs> the sort of core of the book is me trying to analyze um, retellings or recollections made in Summer's own lifetime by people around him um, in letters or in pamphlets and so on, where people in passing say, oh, you know, it's like uh, what Will Summer once said to the king or um, I, I I recall Will Summer once saying this or this. Um, so it's always someone else um, sort of putting putting words in his mouth. Uh, but but it's interesting because they, the, these were people who were uh, close to him and who probably knew him or met him. And it's interesting to see how Summer's own words might have been a bit twisted, a bit touched up to make them appear funnier than they were. And when you have that in mind, you can see that probably this was a natural fool who who was sort of self-conscious of his tendency to put his foot in his mouth, to say things that people around him laughed at. So he noticed that people were laughing at the things he said, even if he might have said things inadvertently or or it didn't mean them as a as a joke. But I mean, we can we can never say say definitely. But I think there was a sort of constant play between this self consciousness and the sort of naivety of a man like him, and that's probably also what was the main appeal of of fools like this, and and what made them 
popular in court circles. Hmm. So, so you said he's a natural fool, so he has some kind of intellectual uh, disability, and that one of the things you think you ferreted out from from these sources is, that might be true is that he was sleepy all the time, almost as if he had <laughs> narcolepsy or something. He seemed to always yes. just be sleeping. Exactly. Uh, there are several references to to Summer's sleepiness and that he had a tendency to fall asleep in odd places. And uh, people at court, servants would find him sleeping and they would go and put a pillow under his head to make him more comfortable or something. He slept with the spaniels. Yes. Like that's, in the that's kennel? That's one of the most... Uh-huh. Uh, exactly. And I, 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 there, there is a reference to him... Uh, after having sort of entertained the king going going away to sleep with the spaniels as if he went into a corner of the room to sleep in the dog basket uh, and here we have once again the human pet parallel is that how he how he lived his life was what is that how he was treated because there are no records of him having quarters at court or in the palaces probably he lived and was fed together with the the lowliest servants and when we speak of, of people in this way, I mean, it's it's horrendous. But yeah. but uh, it, it also says quite a lot about how um, how people of of this type were were viewed in this period. Well, there's some anecdotes that you tell that make it seem as if he was also bad tempered, or maybe he'd been abused, or he'd been you know picked on and bullied, and would take out his frustrations on people nearby. Yes, yes, I think. Um, it seems that there was an atmosphere surrounding a lot of fools of uh, horseplay and manhandling and and very rough treatment. And sometimes, sometimes fools were beaten. There is a a very well known dialogue from from this period by John Haywood, who was one of the foremost uh, poets of of Henry VIII's uh, court, where he references Will Summer. And he, he, it's it's a long list of descriptions of how of how fools are treated uh, generally. Uh, it begins: some beat him, some bob him, some jol him, some job him, some tug him by the arse, some lug him by the ears, some spit at him, some spurn him, some toss him, some turn him, and the list goes on and on. And then uh, it ends: not even Master Summer, the king's greatest fool, can avoid this kind of treatment. So so. Um, it says quite a lot about how fools were generally subjected to this kind of disciplining in the same way as, as children were uh, in this period. Poignant. What did he look like? Do you know that? That's one of the things we actually do know <laughs> because there are several portraits of him uh, preserved. I mean, even even more portraits of him than, than there are of, of some of the foremost uh, aristocrats uh, of, this, of this period. Um, he appears... Never, never alone, but but he appears in, in sort of in the background of of a lot of family portraits uh, from the reigns of Henry VIII and and Mary uh, Tudor and so on. Why are fools in, included in royal family portraits? They weren't generally; they weren't as a rule. But but Will Summer is. Why was he so cherished? And I think it was that he gradually became a sort of mascot of the court, a sort of symbol of the continuity of the Tudor court, especially in the monarchs uh, succeeding Henry to show that it, it was basically the same the same court as before. So between Henry and his son, Henry VIII and yes, his son. Yes, uh-huh. yeah, and his son and his daughters. 
uh, even in portraits from from the reign of Elizabeth I, when when uh, Will Summer was dead, he appears uh, in in the margin as a sort of a you know, reminder. Just, just, yeah, yeah, yeah a, a reminder or just to sort of connect with the the old um, the old order, so to speak. And I think beyond that, uh, fools were probably seen in a way as mascots. So what did he look like? I mean, in, in the portrait, he doesn't look like the archetypal jester with uh, with uh, cap with bells and so on. He looks very uh, morose, very serious. You might at first wonder, is can this really be the court fool? But uh, yes, he, he stands there looking a bit like a like a friar or something. But sometimes he might be seen to to smile a bit of a Mona Lisa smile, but he he d- never sort of comes across as a very uh, a very jesting or or trickster character. He just stands there in the background. He does look very normal. He has normal kind of normal working man clothes on, or I was going to say <laughs> jester leisure wear. Exactly. Yeah, and but if if you look at portraits of fools. Uh, from the early modern period, generally, they 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 are never wearing the sort of stereotypical clothes. Maybe in the later period, in the sort of late seventeenth century, when when fools were starting to disappear, and it was more a sort of reminder of old days. Then we sort of get these fools with the bells and the and the bauble and so on. But but if you look at portraits of fools from the sixteenth, early seventeenth century. They generally wear quite quite normal clothes. They're quite toned down. Sometimes wearing quite dark clothes, um, and that's very strange, of course. But but I think it suggests what other things also suggest, namely that fools they were not just comedians. They were not just there to amuse. There was something more to them than that. And you have uh, the count books from from court that show he had a lot of clothes, most of them green. Mm. And just a ton of buttons. This yes. guy got so many buttons. What was that about? It's uh, looking through the the wardrobe accounts from this period. You are struck by the numerous times buttons are being ordered for Will Summer, the King's Fool, and this, I mean, of course. Sometimes during the 16th century, fashion demanded that you had a, quite a lot of buttons on your clothes. But this is more than that. This is strangely quite a lot of buttons being ordered for him. So, so, so I, I have a brief speculation in the book about whether this is an indication of something else. Was he a collector of buttons? Did he have a tendency to pull off his button in bouts of rage or, or? due to some sort of nervous tendency. Of course we can't say, but but I think when when you notice that it it's sort of you can you're being given a, a very small glimpse of something something more. It's he's so elusive, but so many people wrote about him in his day. And I wonder why he was so interesting. Was it just because of his proximity to a king or his longevity? He's even mentioned in one of the earliest known comedies from 1577, Misogynus. Yes, yes. Uh, And I think the references to him in Misogynus is one of the earliest literary references to him beyond, uh, you know, uh, people writing, uh, writing about him, mentioning him, who knew him. And, and, And after his death, quite soon after his death, he turns into... A literary character, which gradually 
moves further and further away from uh, the real person. So he is he is being increasingly mythologized, and he becomes sort of sort of like a, a Robin Hood character of of fools. Sometimes tales are told of him that were originally told of other fools, and so on. Why Will Summer? Probably just because he was the king's fool during the reign of Henry VIII, and the reign of Henry VIII became uh, such a um, such an important period, um, especially at the end of the 16th century. So that a lot of things that were connected to that period became sort of emblematic. I think also folklore works in this way that if you have a, a certain character that is well known or or that is spoken of a lot, he sort of becomes attached to a lot of other different different motifs and other stories. And when you get to the end of the of the 16th century, the age of Shakespeare and so on, you find him being uh, being a character in a lot of uh, plays. So then he is really well known. Then he is really famous and legendary in a way that he probably wasn't in his own lifetime. Yeah, let's talk about Shakespeare and, and fools because you write about Robert Armin, the clown of the Globe Theater, uh, the actor yes. that played many of Shakespeare's most iconic fools, Touchstone and The Fool and Lear. And he wrote a book about fools called Fool Upon Fool, which I thought was a great title, but then it was later delightfully renamed A Nest of Ninnies. Yes, an even greater title. <laughs> yeah, right. They really outdid themselves. So tell us about it. Was it like a who's who of famous fools? Robert Armin is a very interesting uh, figure, and, and he's quite important when you talk about Will Summer because he was uh, an actor and, uh, and uh, the clown at the Globe, but, but he, he was also very interested in the history of fools. So he tried to compile a, a sort of collective biography of what he thought were legendary fools from history or even fools that he himself had, had encountered in his youth. And one of these were Will Summer. So, so the chapter about Will Summer in, in Fool Upon Fool it is perhaps one of the most important sources of information about him, even though it is posthumous and, and, and occasionally a bit unreliable. But Robert Armin was, was instrumental, I think, in shaping a new Fool character that was partly based on this old image of the, of the court Fool. And Will Summer played a role in that. Well, how do we see that in his performances, or even in Shakespeare's characterizations? Because they kind of work together on the on on the fools as as a character, didn't they, Shakespeare? Yes, and Armin? yes, probably they did. And I, I mean, it's a bit uh, it's a bit contradictory because Armin is is often credited with creating a new type of fool character in later Shakespearean drama. That was more clever, more of a more of a witty fool than than his predecessor Will Kemp, whose fools in um, Merchant of Venice, uh, Two Gentlemen of Verona, and so on, were often bumbling, stupid servants, and so on. And, so, so, and so, raucous and slapstick. Exactly. Or, yes. Mm. Yes. Definitely. So so it's strange that that being inspired by earlier court fools robert armin creates this witty fool and perhaps the sort of posthumous image of fools like will summer made them out to be more of the sort of uh, clever truth tellers than than they actually were so based on that image he he created a new type of fool i mean almost all of the fool characters that he played festi or lavatch or Touchstone, they are court fools, unlike Will Kemp's characters. 
So, so that's the sort of inspiration he he got. Well, despite the wittiness, do you see Will Summer in Shakespeare's Fools? That's a good question. I mean, he the, the interesting thing about Shakespeare's play of Henry VIII is that Will Summer is not in it, and he even has a prologue saying to the audience, "You might expect to see." the well-known motley fool of the reign of Henry VIII in, in this play, but you will not. So to try and, you know, prepare the audience for this disappointment, he says that, that Will Summer will not be part of his play. Unlike uh, a lot of other of his contemporaries who wrote plays about the reign of Henry VIII and did include Will Summer as a very witty fool who sort of improvises verse and and um, does a lot of practical joking and so on, quite unlike the the real Will Summer. So it's it's strange. A lot of scholars have have pondered about this. Why didn't Shakespeare write a role for Robert Armin based on Will Summer? But maybe maybe there was something there. Maybe maybe uh, Robert Armin was reluctant to play this very by by now very legendary and well known fool. Hmm. What happened to fools in the 17th century? Um, gradually, it becomes rarer and rarer for, for kings to employ court fools. And when we get to the period of Louis XIV in, in France and then, of course, the Enlightenment and so on, it becomes less and less common. But but they don't disappear. Um, a recent book, actually, about fools in the Age of Enlightenment by uh, an American historian called, called Dorinda Utram very rightly states that there were a lot of a lot of court fools up until the end of the of the 18th century and this is particularly true of of certain countries like the nordic countries or eastern europe so enlightenment didn't sort of banish the keeping of fools because it was seen as as distasteful or something like that no cool. um, i think this <laughs> that that happened I'm eventually but but here. yeah yeah <laughs> It was seen as distasteful and cruel eventually, but not until the very end of the 18th century, I think, when, of course, the era of, of uh, monarchy and the Ancien Regime and so on changed irrevocably. There was a, certainly court dwarfs employed by the, by the English court until the early 18th century, and the last court dwarf at the English court was a man called Conrad Copperman. And before him was the even more famous court dwarf, Geoffrey Hudson, who was quite a well-known figure in the 17th century. But then it, it disappears and it disappears because so society disappears, <laughs> society changes, and uh, there are new conditions for this. And in a way, you might see new entertainment forms in the late 18th, early 19th century as new areas where the equivalent of, of court fools or court dwarfs could be employed, like sideshows or the circus or carnivals or fairs and so on. So so the, the this type of entertainment didn't disappear, but but it probably swapped arenas. Um in the end, you know, I had this impression reading your book that there was a case to be made that Will Summer was the first reality TV star. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> there is a connection there is a connection there I think uh, on some level and it maybe it helps to view uh, a fool as a as an equivalent of a reality TV star because some of the these people they become celebrities and they become laughed at and they become seen as amusing sometimes without getting the joke themselves 
yes. uh, if you know what I mean. So, so there is a sort of uh, exploitation of of the, the uh, naivety or or the uh, unself conscious behavior of some, of some people in reality TV that I think is useful to to look at because this shows a bit how how uh, court fools might have been uh, used or or perceived. And that is also a bit what uh, what Shakespeare says when he has Hamlet um, dismissing uh, clowns who laugh too much at themselves or who try too hard to be funny. He thinks it's more funny with clowns that are unaware of their own funniness. And that sort of penchant for, for that type of unselfconscious comedy uh, is something that you can find in different periods in history. And it's interesting to to join up these little dots and see what they have in common and if if there might be some sort of uh, common thread here. You've studied the whole history of comedy. So Mm. where do you see Fool's influence throughout history? I mean, do we see it in Slapstick? Do we see it on Saturday Night Live? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Slapstick is interesting because I, 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 I haven't seen uh, that many court fools uh, indulging in slapstick jokes or or anything like that. I mean, Will Summer definitely he was not a physical comedian in any way. But maybe in in other aspects, uh, you can see parallels in in sort of the proclivity for for a type of comedy that that is deadpan that doesn't sort of try too hard to make the audience laugh you know Stephen Wright and that type of stand up comedian who who has a very sort of serious demeanor um it's the same sort of taste there Stephen Wright is one of my favorite comedians now i'm always going to picture him with a billion buttons <laughs> Thank you so much for this. Thank you. I really enjoyed talking with you. Thank you. That was Peter K. Anderson interviewed by Barbara Bogave. His book, Fool in Search of Henry VIII's Closest Man, is now out from Princeton University Press. This episode was produced by Matt Frassica. Garland Scott is the associate producer. It was edited by Gail Kern-Pastor. Ben Lauer is the web producer with help from Leonor Fernandez. We had technical help from Frida Anund in Sweden and Voice Tracks West in Studio City, California. Final mixing services provided by Clean Cuts at 3Cs, Inc. If you're a fan of Shakespeare Unlimited, please leave us a review on your podcast platform of choice to help others find the show. Shakespeare Unlimited comes to you from the Folger Shakespeare Library home to the world's largest Shakespeare collection, the Folger is dedicated to advancing knowledge in the arts. Our building in Washington, D.C. has been under construction for the past three years, but we're looking forward to fully reopening in 2024. You can find more about the Folger at our website, folger.edu. Thanks for listening. For the Folger Shakespeare Library, I'm Folger Director Michael Whitmore. <laughs>